So this morning, as you heard, we continue going through this series in the book of Philippians. And since we finished chapter 2 last week, and Philippians is four chapters long, we can now say that we are officially halfway through, which is exciting. We've gone verse by verse through two chapters, and now we pick up in chapter 3 this morning. And as we start chapter 3, as you might have noticed in that scripture reading, here Paul, in a sense, is starting to bring this letter to an end. And you can see that in the first word of our text, that word, finally, finally. Now, to be clear, Paul still goes on for two more chapters after this, but I point that out for us. This is important for us to see that this means that what's now going on is Paul is giving his final topics or themes, if you will, of what he thinks the Philippians and we need to know before he brings this letter to a close. And in terms of which topic then we'll be covering this morning, what Paul is going to talk about in these three verses is the topic of worship. Worship. And specifically, we're going to see both some warnings against false worship and an explanation of true worship. And to be clear, though, at the outset, when we say worship, when the Bible talks about worship and we're going to talk about it this morning, we're not primarily talking about a Sunday morning activity. We're not primarily talking about just what we do here in church on Sunday morning. The Bible rarely, honestly, talks about worship just like that. Instead, by talking about this topic of worship, what we're talking about is the inclination of our hearts deep inside to genuinely cherish and honor God. Now, that honoring of God can be done and should be done in Sunday morning here, like when you're singing or when we're praying or when you're listening to the Bible preached and understanding it more, like right now. And that, by the way, and just kind of a side note, is why you may have noticed that in our order of service in the bulletin that you get when you walk in, we're sure to say that this part of the service, I don't know if you've noticed this, is hearing from God's word in worship. Because worship is not just singing. All of that we're doing here, singing, praying, hearing from God and loving him more because of it, should be worship. So worship can happen and should happen here on Sunday morning, but also this honoring of God, this worship in our hearts for the Christians should be done throughout all of life. When we're at home, when we're at work, wherever we are, we can honor and love and cherish God in our hearts. So all of it can be worship. And so that's our topic this morning, worship. But before we even get into that and give an outline of how we're going to go through these verses this morning, look down really quickly with me at verse 1. Verse 1. Because this verse is what Paul says to introduce our topic. So I wanted to introduce our message here this morning too. So let's read verse 1 together to start. The Bible says this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And then as you can see from here on out in verses 2 and 3, he goes and talks about the topic of worship. But I don't want us to rush past verse 1 too quickly and just get the topic of worship because we briefly need to see that in verse 1 here, to introduce this topic, Paul takes a second and reminds us, he even commands us to rejoice in the Lord. And not only that, he says, to write this to you is no trouble for me, but it's safe for you. And so the point Paul is making for us right away as we begin our message in verse 1 is that we should rejoice in the Lord 
Because as we do so, we're kept safe. We're protected from going astray. And specifically in what's coming up in these next couple of verses, if we rejoice in the Lord, we're kept safe from worshiping in a false way. And, and why would this be? Well, in brief, because if we truly rejoice in the Lord, brothers and sisters, meaning if we truly find a unique happiness and joy and contentment and fulfillment in what Jesus has done and who Jesus is, then that will keep us safe from so many errors. But now with all that said, we can move on to our topic of worship in verses 2 and 3. And as for an outline of how we'll go through these verses, we'll split up our time into three sections. Three sections. First, we'll look at some warnings about worship. Second, we'll then contrast that with what true worship is. And then third and finally, we'll look at who we are as Christians that leads us to true worship. So in some warnings about first, what false worship. Second, what true worship is. And then third, who we are that leads us to worship truly. And so with that said, let's now dig into our text and look at our first section. And this will be some warnings about worship. And for this, we'll be in verse 2. So we read verse 1, but now, brothers and sisters, look down at your Bible. We'll be in Philippians 3, 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So to begin, you can see that these are three warnings because of that, those three look out for's. And in fact, in the original language, it's even maybe a little more emphatic than that. Something like, beware of, might be even a bit better. So the question is, what are we to look out for? What are we to beware of? We see that there are three things, and we'll take them quickly one by one. First, you can see in our worship, we're to look out for the dogs. The dogs. Now let's be honest. At first, this sounds a little jarring to us because it sounds pretty harsh. Because in our modern language, to call someone a dog is pretty rude. And and in one sense, it's true. This is meant to be a warning. But also, we need to see that this wasn't back then the same nasty derogatory term it would be for us to use today. Instead, it's rooted in the Old Testament, especially in the few of the Psalms. And the idea in the Old Testament was that people were called dogs. Those who were called dogs were those who did evil and then harmed others. And that makes sense. And in this way, calling someone a dog is similar to calling someone a wolf, like our Lord Jesus did, or calling someone a lion even. Both of those are biblical terms. And so the idea here just concerning worship is watch out for those who, by how they worship, whether they mean to or not, by how they worship, are going to harm you. That's the idea. One more thing on this, and this is something we're going to see for all three of these lookout fors, and that's that it needs to be noted that the dog's in the Old Testament were specifically references to those who were non-Israelites and the nations who didn't know the Lord and therefore who acted in such a harmful way. In other words, to the Jews in the Old Testament, the Gentiles who didn't know the Lord were the dogs. But I bring that up here because as we're going to see as we keep going, Paul in this context in Philippians 3 is specifically talking about the angry Jewish people in his day who were denying Christ. And so this is a huge reversal here that he's doing. Because now, these unbelieving Israelites, these combatant Israelites who are denying Jesus, are the dogs. 
while the predominantly Gentile Philippians and Gentile ECC are not. We'll come back to that later, though. So that's the first thing. Look out for the dogs. Leads us to the next thing. You can see it again in verse 2. Look out for the evildoers. And this is the simplest one to understand because to be an evildoer just means to be someone who does evil. But once again here, this needs to be noted, in the Old Testament, the evildoers specifically were those who did not know the Lord God. That led them to do evil. And so once again, this is a reversal for Paul because he's talking about the Jews in his day who were denying Jesus. And because of that, now they've become the evildoers. But that finally leads us to the last lookout for And it's the most emphatic one. Verse 2, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And this is the biggest reversal here. It's kind of shocking what Paul says here. And to see what's going on when he says this, we need again to note that in the Old Testament, those who mutilated the flesh were those who didn't know the Lord God as well. And why? Well, because especially in ancient times, as you might know, in a lot of ancient religions, they believed that in order to please your deity, in order to please your God, you could show your honor, your, your, your uh, allegiance by hurting yourself, right? slashing yourself, cutting yourself, mutilating yourself, even sacrificing your own children, anything like that. And why? Because you wanted to please your deity. You wanted to please your God. But the Lord God in the Old Testament wasn't like that. And the Jews knew that. And in fact, the biggest example of this and the story that Paul might be referencing when he talks like this in verse 2 is the famous story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You might know the story. It takes place in 1 Kings 18. But in brief, Elijah, the prophet Elijah challenges the 450 prophets of Baal to prove who is actually God, the one true God. Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, or Baal. And to do this, they make some altars on the mountain, and both are supposed to call upon their gods to light the fire miraculously. And first up was the prophets of Baal, and they started calling on Baal for hours, but nothing happened. And so what did they then do? They resorted to mutilating their flesh. The Bible says this, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed upon them. And so it was their custom to mutilate their flesh to try to please Baal. But as you know, it didn't work. And then to finish the story, as you may know, Elijah comes up. He just prays once that the Lord God may make it clear that he is God and the Lord does light the fire. But the point for us this morning is that this was a mini picture of the Old Testament's view of the surrounding nations and how they tried to please their gods. They mutilated their flesh at times, doing whatever it took to get their God on their side. But again, the Lord God of Israel, the only God, isn't like that. And so Paul, in one sense, in verse 2, is saying, watch out for those who think they have to please God by doing things like that. But in another and important sense, that's not all Paul is saying here. Instead, he's also shockingly once again reversing this idea on the unbelieving Israelites of his day. And how? We'll look at the next few words of even just verse 3. For we are the circumcision. 
Now we'll come back to exactly what that means, but this shows that what Paul is doing here is he's saying that the Jews who are now denying Christ, who think that they're saved because of their ethnicity or because of their physical mutilation of circumcision, now they've become like the prophets of Baal. And why? Because they think that pleasing God is all about rituals and ethnicity and mutilating your flesh and circumcision and not about what God has done in the gospel of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so that's the reversal. And that's the point that Paul is making in this verse and all three of those look out for us. And that's the point for us too here this morning, church. The point here is that these Israelites in Paul's day who were denying Jesus were now not worshiping the Lord. Instead, they were relying on their own works, their own flesh, their own religiosity. And for us, although we may not be encountering right, the same Jewish opponents that Paul was encountering back then, the same principle applies today. Because still today, there are many different religions and even many different variations of so-called Christianity that are just like this. Because the warning from Paul here, let's make clear, isn't to watch out for a certain ethnic group or a certain group of people. Instead, his point is, when you boil it down, watch out for why people worship. What's going on when they worship? Do they worship God through Christ, all due to grace and what he lovingly did for us in the gospel or in their worship? Did they rely on their own selves and their own actions and their own religiosity in their worship of God? Because that's essentially what's going on with these unbelieving Jews in Paul's day. And that's what happens in basically every other religion and every other non-gospel-centered Christianity even in our day as well. Because think about just many other religions. For example, Islam and the Quran talks a lot about Allah's mercy But Muslims know that it's about really obeying the five pillars really well that will get them into paradise. Same goes for Hinduism, where nirvana is reached through your improved karma and reincarnation and reincarnation. The same is even true in Buddhism, which although isn't technically a religion, it is a worldview that teaches that for you to get out of suffering, you should follow the eightfold path really well. And finally, this is even stronger in cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses. Where although they acknowledge faith, they deeply believe that they need to please Jehovah by their devotion in order to achieve that salvation. And so this is the essence of basically all other religions. And sadly, the same essence even exists in many so-called Christian churches today. For example... I do believe anyone in the Catholic Church can be saved if they truly trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. But the official Catholic doctrine still sadly teaches that it's Jesus plus my works and obedience in the church that makes me a saint, that makes me not go to purgatory for a long time and then achieve salvation. The same essence, although in a much different way, is also found in a lot of mainline Christianity where it isn't about the gospel and the glory of Christ. Instead, it's about our tolerance and our love and our acceptance. 
And finally, this same essence can be found in unloving fundamentalist churches where although they'll say they believe the Bible, when you boil it down, they really make it about how we strictly obey the Lord and not about the gospel of grace. And so I know that's a lot, but I say all that because we need to see that in each and every one of those cases, although they take on different names and different shapes and different forms, in each case, the essence is the same as what we see in Philippians 3, verse 2 here. Because the essence of such worship is, you please God, and you're continually right with God by what you do. Whether it's mutilating your flesh or following the five pillars well or going door to door and telling other people about Jehovah or being very tolerant or making sure you don't drink or smoke. Whatever it is, all of them are about you. And the Bible is saying that that type of worship is not only wrong, but it's harmful. And why? Because it isn't the gospel. It isn't the good news of Jesus Christ because the good news instead is that we are fully saved by Jesus alone. By what Jesus has done for us. By grace alone. Meaning it's not about us. In fact, we're just the sinners. By faith alone. Meaning all we do is trust him and we're saved for the glory of God alone. Not so we can get any credit, but all for his praise. Or to say it another way, the gospel is that we are saved by God through Jesus Christ. It is finished. And we trust in him and that's it. And this is true before salvation and even after your salvation. It really is finished. And we rest in Jesus Christ. It really is all about Jesus. So that's verse 2. And that's what to look out for in false worship. But now that leads us into our second section in the contrast of what true worship is. And for this, we'll be in verse 3. Verse 3. So let's read that now. Philippians 3, verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So we'll come back to the idea of we are the circumcision a little bit. But notice, just as there were three lookout fours in verse 2, so here there are three characteristics of true worship. And we'll take each of these as well one by one, but we'll start with the last one and then go to the first. So to begin, first, true worship is, quote, we put no confidence in the flesh. And we go here first because this shows us that we were on the right track in verse 2. Because this is the opposite of verse 2. And it's the opposite of all the other religions and various false Christianities we talked about a second ago. Because in essence, what those were is they are putting confidence in the flesh. Meaning their worship has to do with putting some confidence in who they are in their flesh. Or what they do in their flesh. But as Christians, the Bible says we put no confidence in that. We put no confidence in who we are naturally, and we put really no confidence in even what we do. And notice, this is, this is really important for us. The Bible here in verse 3 is saying that that's part of our worship. This, this self-renunciation, if you will, part of our worship in our very hearts is this, it's not about me. 
Part of our worship is it's not about my traditions or my ethnicity. ethnicity. It's not about who I am or what I've done. So that's the first thing about true worship. We put no confidence in the flesh. But then the question is, well then, what is it about? And that's our second thing there in verse 3. And that's that true worship is, quote, we glory in Christ Jesus. And that really is the heart of true worship because to glory in Christ Jesus is the heart of what it means to be a Christian because it means to not glory, meaning to, to not glory or exalt or make much of yourself or what you've done, but instead to glory in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. That's true worship. Which leads us to the third and final thing about what true worship is in verse 3. We worship by the Spirit of God. And with that word by there, you can see that this shows us how we worship. And this, once again, by seeing this, we see that it isn't about our own willpower alone. Instead, we worship by God's Spirit, meaning we can't do this on our own. So God enables us by himself, by his Spirit, to worship him. And so that's true worship, those three things. We worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh and who we are. But one last thing on this before we move on to our third and final section. And I want us to see this because this really stuck out to me as I was studying this passage. And that's how, if you think about it this way, out of the three characteristics we just saw here in verse 3, two of them basically set Christianity apart, almost totally apart, while for one other of them, the other one of them, almost every other religion and cult also says it's true of them. And here's what I mean by that. Only true Christians will genuinely say in their hearts, I glory in Christ Jesus alone. And only true Christians really have this doctrine of we put absolutely no confidence in our flesh, meaning we are saved by faith alone. And so those two characteristics there in verse 3 are almost exclusively biblical and gospel-centered Christianity. But what's amazing, especially when you start to study other religions and cults, and even other aberrant sects of Christianity, is how most of them say they also worship by God's Spirit. It's fascinating. This again is true of religions like Hinduism and it's true of almost all the cults. And it's true even of Christians who deny some key doctrines like the Trinity and yet they say that they genuinely feel and experience God's Spirit. Every single one of them will claim that the divine Spirit of their deity is enabling them to worship the Spirit of God. And not only that, and we we really do need to get this, they also will claim that that spirit of their God or gods gives them good feelings and experiences and even miraculous ones. So the question is, what do we do with this? Because glorying in Christ Jesus and putting no confidence in the flesh does set our worship apart, but by just saying we worship by the Spirit of God does not. So what do we do with this? Well, this is where those last two characteristics of verse 3 are so important. 
Because the answer, and it's implied here and it's explicit in other places in the Bible, is that the true spirit of God always leads us in our worship to glory in Christ Jesus and to put no confidence in the flesh. And this then is how we test if it's truly the spirit of God. Because it isn't mainly about our emotions or our experiences. Nor can it be about just calling whatever we're feeling the Spirit of God. Because again, many religions and most cults do that. Instead, the question is, is your so-called worship by the Spirit of God leading you to glorify Jesus Christ more and more? Is the Spirit of God leading you to put less and less confidence in your flesh? And this is so important even for us in our Christian circles. Because even for genuine Christians, especially in the last hundred years or so, so often those who most want to be spirit-filled people, which is a good thing, can start to mainly seek out certain feelings or experiences. And then they can start to subtly put their confidence in and glory in such feelings and experiences. And then... What has happened a lot, especially in the past hundred years ago, is they can start to subtly glory in Jesus less and less. But the point for us here this morning is if that happens, we have good reason from the Bible to doubt that it's truly the Spirit of God. And to be clear, this also fits with what Jesus Christ told us about the Holy Spirit. For example, in John 15, Jesus told us that the Spirit's job when He comes, and He has come, will be to, quote, bear witness about me, to bear witness about Jesus. And then in John 16, Jesus told us the Spirit's job will be to, quote, glorify me. And so the Spirit's job, according to Jesus, is to glorify Jesus, not glorify himself. And so Paul is just taking Jesus' example here in Philippians 3, by saying that we worship by the Spirit of God, which means we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, and we need to follow Jesus' example as well. Because again, the only way to know that we're truly worshiping by the Spirit of God isn't our feelings or experiences. Those do matter to a degree. But again, just remember that many other religions and most cults say the same things, that they have experiences by the Spirit of God. And also, the Bible's pretty clear that other things and other spirits can influence our emotions. Instead, what matters is, are you glorying more and more in Christ Jesus? And are you amazingly putting less and less confidence in who you are and what you've done? If you are, then in your heart, you are worshiping by the Spirit of God. Because apart from the Holy Spirit's enablement, None of us would ever think and feel like that. But that finally leads us to our third section. It's our final section this morning. So we've contrasted false and true worship. But now finally we're going to see who we are as Christians that leads us to true worship. And for this we're going to read verses 2 and 3 again. But before we do so, now that we've covered basically most of verses 2 and 3, you can notice how Paul wrote these verses. Because it's intentional and almost poetic, as you might have seen. Because he first lists three characteristics of false worship in verse 2. And then in verse 3, we said he lists three characteristics of true worship. 
But then sandwiched emphatically in the middle of this pair of threes is the main idea upon which true worship hinges. But see it for yourself. Let's read those verses now and notice the thing in the middle of these pair of threes that comes in the first of, at the beginning of verse 3. So verses 2 and 3 of Philippians 3. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So you can see it for yourself. What's the main idea upon which true worship hinges? Quote, we are the circumcision. That is the central idea, literally. And it's what separates false worship from true worship because as you can say, Paul, as you can see, Paul says, for we are the circumcision who, and so the idea that is, if you are the circumcision, then you worship truly. And so the question is, what does this mean? What does Paul mean when he says of us who trust in Jesus, who glory in Jesus, that, quote, we are the circumcision? Well, here's where the Bible gets profound. So if you've been tracking, Paul has been comparing the ethnic Israelites of his day who now deny the Messiah Jesus to those Jew or Gentile in the Philippian church, especially to who glory in Christ Jesus. But his biggest point in all of this is that he's now saying that us Christians, we Christians who trust and love Jesus Christ, whether we're Jewish like Paul or Gentiles like most of the Philippians, we are now the circumcision. Meaning, we are now the true Israelites. The people of God. That's Paul's point. His point is that those who deny Christ now, even if they are physically circumcised and ethnic Israelites, are not true Israelites. While those who accept Jesus Christ now, whether they're circumcised like Paul or not circumcised like the Philippians, are true Israelites. Israelites, we are the circumcision who glory in Christ Jesus. And to understand this more, because I'm sure you have questions, we need to see that this is an idea that comes up in multiple places in the New Testament, and most emphatically from both Paul and Peter, who, as you remember, were both Jews themselves and loved the Old Testament and loved their people. But I want you to see this for yourself because it's so helpful for us to understand this, understand the story of the Old Testament, understand where we fit in Jesus Christ. So to see this, let's go to three other places quickly in the New Testament together. I do encourage you to turn there with me, whether in a Bible or on your phone, three other places. First, turn with me to Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. Romans 2. Romans is going to be to the left of your Bible, not too far, but a handful of pages. Romans 2. So it's going to be Romans 2, 28 and 29. And this is from Paul again in Romans 2. And here, Paul makes the same point he makes in Philippians 3 there, but he spells it out a bit more. So let's read those verses now. Romans 2, 28 and 29. Paul writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. 
So hopefully you can see Paul's point. Remember, he's an ethnic Jew, an Israelite. And he knows that God made a covenant with the Israelites to be their God while they were be his people. And Paul knows that the sign that they were given to show that they were God's people was the sign of circumcision. So Paul knows all that. That's all in the Old Testament. But now, notice what Paul says clearly in verse 28. Being a true Jew in true circumcision actually isn't an outward or physical thing. Instead, as he says clearly in verse 29, a true Jew, meaning someone who's truly part of God's people, is someone who's circumcised in the heart. Meaning someone who's been made new through Christ by the Spirit. That's a true Israelite according to the Bible here. Or to use the words from Philippians 3, that person is actually part of the circumcision, part of the people of God. So that was Romans 2. But now to see Peter, the Apostle Peter, say something similar, turn with you to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2. It's going to be a little farther to the right, almost towards the end of your Bible. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. So here, Peter isn't going to talk about circumcision. Instead, he's going to talk about Israel and the people of God in general. And again, let's just remember, Peter, like Paul, was Jewish himself. But notice what Peter says in verses 9 and 10, 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So if we had more time, we could go through each one of those things that Peter says there. But the point for us here this morning is how Peter describes those who trust in Jesus Christ here. And how does he do so? With terms that were specifically used of Old Testament Israel. And in fact, many of these are just direct citations from Exodus 19 where God is describing his people Israel. But now Peter is saying that it's those who trust in Christ Those who trust in Christ who are, quote, God's chosen race, are God's holy nation, are the king's royal priesthood, and finally are God's people. And like Paul, what does Peter say is the differentiator between those who are in the people of God, those who are in this chosen race now in this holy nation, those who are not? Well, if you're still in 1 Peter 2, just look quickly at verse 7. He makes it plain. The honor... Is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, then he talks about how they rejected Jesus. In other words, Peter is saying, what makes you part of the people of God now is not your ethnicity or your upbringing or any tradition. It alone is faith in Jesus Christ. But that leads us now to our final text to see this. I know this is a lot, but let's turn now to Galatians 6. So Galatians is going to be close to Philippians, a little further to the left. Galatians 6, verses 14 through 16. And this is going to be Paul again, and we go here because this is one of the best places where Paul gets really specific about all this. Because here he's going to combine the ideas of circumcision and the idea of Israel. So let's now read Galatians 6, verses 14 through 16. Paul writes, But far be it from me to boast 
except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So see it for yourself. Paul boasts in the cross of Christ in verse 14. Then in verse 15, you see it. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Instead, what matters is a new creation, meaning the circumcision of the heart. And then his final point comes in verse 16. Because there, with these ideas in mind, Paul, who once again was an ethnic Israelite himself, says clearly that those who are now like this, those who trust in Christ, are, quote, the Israel of God. And this is a large statement for him to make, but says it clearly. Those who boast in Jesus alone, who don't look to physical things like circumcision or works, but instead trust in Jesus Christ, are the Israel of God. Are God's people. God's Israel. And so now turn back with me to Philippians 3 if you can. It's just a few pages to the right. Philippians 3. So we go over this in detail because this means now when Paul talks about the circumcision in verse 3 here, this is what he's referencing. The point here in Romans 2 and 1 Peter 2 and Galatians 6, and you can read it in more detail in Romans 9 through 11, is once again that what matters now is, is not who you are, but it's Christ and trusting in him and being made new in him. And this matters for our worship and our honoring of God because it means that it doesn't matter at all if you're ethnically an Israelite or any other ethnicity. Peter and Paul were Jews while the Gentiles were all Philippians. Nor does it matter if you're physically circumcised or not. Paul and Peter's point is that those things are not what make God's people God's people. Nor does any of our ethnicity or our traditions or our actions make us any closer to true worship. Instead, all that matters now is the gospel and trusting in Jesus Christ. And again, the apostles taught for those who do trust in Christ, Jew or Gentile, we are the people of God. We are the circumcision. We are the Israel of God. While for those who do not trust in Christ, Jew or Gentile, they are not the people of God. No longer the Israel of God, no longer the circumcised. Now to be clear, and one last thing on this. If you're familiar with any of this discussion, what I'm not talking about here this morning is replacement theology. The Bible nowhere teaches that the church replaced Israel or anything like that. Peter and Paul, I don't think, believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that. Instead, what we've been talking about here this morning, what we've seen from the Bible, is Jesus Christ, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and how he truly is the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament, including the people of Israel. Because the New Testament is clear. Jesus is the true Israelite. He is the awaited for Messiah, the king, the prophet, the priest, the true and faithful Israelite that all the Old Testament was looking forward to. And so when he came, 
His Jewish apostles who understood this taught that now it's no longer about being Jew or Gentile. And it's no longer about Israel or any land or a temple or Sabbaths or Passovers or sacrifices or anything like that. Instead, literally, it is now all about the Messiah, Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all of those things. And it's about trusting in him. If you don't, Jew or Gentile, you're no longer the people of God, the Israel of God. But if you do, Jew or Gentile, you are now in God's people because you are in Christ, who is the true Israel, who is the fulfillment of Israel. And so once again, it's all about Jesus. Because if you're in him, you're in God's people. And so that's why who we are as Christians leads us to worship truly. Because now just again, look down at verse 3. Paul says this, for we are the circumcision. And what did the circumcision do? What do God's people now do who worship by the Spirit of God? Glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So that's our text. And I know that has been a lot, but I hope it's been helpful to understand worship and also helpful to understand the true supremacy of Jesus in this whole book, the Bible. Because the church, it really is all about him. The whole story of the Old Testament, the whole story of the people of God, the story that you and I are living in now, it's all about him. And if we downplay him and instead make our worship subtly more about us, we won't be truly worshiping God. But on the other hand, if we don't put our confidence in ourselves, but instead glory in Christ Jesus and make it all about him, then we will be, by God's spirit, truly worshiping God. And specifically, we will be worshiping God because we are God's people. And so church, let's now go out from here today and live and worship as the people of God we are. Let's worship by God's spirit, meaning let's put less and less confidence in who we are or what we've done. That's before or after we've become a Christian. But instead, above all, let's glory in, let's rejoice in, and let's be thankful for Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen, Amen church. Let's pray.